0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the U.S. Senate takes up impeachment, the House will focus on the president's economic recovery plan. We'll talk live with Colorado Democratic Representative Ed Perlmutter about what to expect. Then policing and blue lining. We'll explore the concept that a crowd of white people is not perceived as a threat compared to people of color and how that played out at the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Then teens are missing out on milestones. Nadia Rivera has dreamed of her quinceanera for years, but she's losing hope that she'll be able to celebrate it this summer.
1: It means a lot to have a quinceanera. You know, it's to come into womanhood, basically, and to not have that now is really heartbreaking.
2: During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on, Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The impeachment of former President Donald Trump has now moved to the Senate, leaving House members to tackle President Joe Biden's priority, a big COVID-19 recovery package. For more about that and other issues facing the new Congress, I'm joined by Democratic Representative Ed Perlmutter. His district includes many of Denver's western and northern suburbs, and Representative of welcome.
2: Uh, good morning, Andrea.
0: Well, let's start with the president's proposed direct stimulus payment of $1,400 per person. There's been some talk about refining that. It would be directing the money to lower income people, those most in need, rather than giving that amount to everyone. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I, if we can refine it and do it promptly, uh, so that these pandemic payments get out quickly, uh, then okay. Uh, but right now, it's for there are uh, income uh, brackets who get this fourteen hundred dollars. It doesn't go to everyone, and it's you know based on income and things like that. It could be refined more, but I'm with uh, the president on this. Uh, president Biden uh, is prepared to refine it, but he wants to get these checks out the door because. People need it and the economy needs it.
0: Another element of the president's plan is raising the federal minimum wage to $15. The Colorado minimum wage is now $12.32. Obviously, in an economic crisis, a lot of workers need higher paying jobs to meet their expenses. But this would also raise costs for lots of small businesses. Many are struggling right now to keep their doors open. Where do you fall on that particular part of the plan?
2: Well, I'd like to see the minimum wage raised. Uh, Colorado has uh, kind of done this step program so that it goes up gradually over time. And again, that's something that could be refined. uh, Some places, whether you're Seattle or maybe New York City or San Francisco, uh, $15 wage means one thing. If you're in rural Colorado, it means something else. So if we can, in a quick moment, Uh, come up with a way to refine it. I'm prepared to do that. But again, I don't want to hold up this big economic package, the COVID package, to refine just to perfection. People need the help now.
0: Is there another element of the Biden plan you think will be particularly helpful to people here in Colorado?
2: Oh, I think that the part of the plan, getting uh, vaccines to people in mass quantities. Uh, We know in Colorado and elsewhere across the country uh, that there just hasn't been a good distribution plan. There hasn't been enough uh, vaccine made available. And once we get people vaccinated and the virus starts to subside, we're also gonna see the economy uh, take off. So I think that uh, the president and his efforts, and he's done a lot in the last couple days on the coronavirus, to really make sure we develop and distribute as much vaccine as possible, treat people with as many possible treatments as possible to get this virus behind us.
0: And we'll talk more about vaccines in a moment, but is there part of the recovery proposal as it's written now that you don't support?
2: No, I like uh, his uh, proposal. The, the biggest part we didn't talk I didn't talk about it is infrastructure. And we certainly need a big infrastructure package uh, for this country. It's been talked about for some time, uh, but we really, under the um, Trump administration, we really didn't do the kind of uh, infrastructure that's needed to keep our country competitive. And when we're building roads and bridges and we're uh, rebuilding our waterworks and adding broadband and working on our electrical grid as well as housing and schools, That's going to put a lot of people to work, too. So one, it'll make us competitive with the rest of the world for the next 50 years, and it will put a lot of people to work right now.
0: And what will that mean for Colorado in particular?
2: Well, Colorado, obviously, we need uh, our roads and our bridges need a lot of work. Uh, we, We have for years been trying to come up with some state initiative to help us there Uh, But we definitely need a lot of work on our roads and bridges. It will help us expand our broadband. And we're seeing that a number of our cities and and communities have aging uh, water systems that all need uh, some help. So good projects that will be excellent into the future, but are good jobs today. A
0: lot of people are worried about what this level of federal spending will mean for the economy and whether it will hurt it in the long run. Others say, no, we need to spend right now. What are your thoughts?
2: Uh, My thoughts are we need the infrastructure now and we need to get this virus behind us now. And so, uh, you know, we'll eventually have to pay this back in some way, but we will have a competitive and a strong economy and a healthy population uh, to do it. I think if we continue to wait, we're going to see our co- economy continue to shrink, and we're going to see our deaths uh, continue to rise. And we've got to stop both of those things. So, you know, I appreciate the the folks that uh, want to you know tighten the belt, which they didn't want to do under Trump, but now they want to do it under Biden. But we need to get infrastructure built, and we need to get the virus. Uh, Under control.
0: What about the next generation, though? What are they going to have to deal with uh, with all this money that we're spending right now?
2: Well, I, you know, the next generation will have different problems to confront. Uh, The costs that we have to incur now are something that they may have to pay, but we want to make sure that they have a healthy and strong population and a strong economy, and that will be you know, most of the battle for them. So over time, it will get paid. This country uh, has a lot of assets. And when we look at all the assets that we have, especially us as Americans, as people, that's our greatest asset. Uh, If we are healthy and we have jobs, uh, the future will take care of itself and uh, future generations will thank us.
0: You announced last November that you had COVID. Is there anything in your personal experience with the virus that might influence your view on how President Bi- Biden should handle the pandemic?
2: Uh, thanks for that question, Andrea. Yeah, no, I can tell you, if you have a choice between the virus and a vaccine, take the vaccine every time. Virus mm-hmm. uh, is uh, not pleasant. And I had a lot of little things and still have a couple that... Uh, you know, are just now getting over. So it is, it's something that is deadly, or it can, you know, be just a passing cold for some folks. But for, um, for many, it's a, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough disease. And uh, the president has his sights right where they should be and getting this virus under control. There
0: always seem to be new worries with COVID-19. The Biden administration says it can speed up the vaccine rollout and get businesses and schools open. But now there are these variants of the virus popping up that are more contagious, possibly more deadly. Does that shake your confidence in a possible recovery?
2: No, it doesn't. Um, I think that we've always known that these viruses would and could mutate. And that's what they're doing. These vaccines seem to be plenty powerful. If you listen to Dr. Fauci about it, uh, they're powerful enough to, to deal with these variants. I mean, obviously you don't want uh, another spread of this uh, virus, a, a slight uh, variation, but I think we're gonna be in good shape and you know, we're just gonna have to deal with it. I feel the last administration was a miserable failure in how they ultimately dealt with the virus allowed it to spread farther than it should have, but now we've got to put a number of steps into place and President Biden and his administration have already done uh, a number of executive orders that I think will help uh, develop more vaccine, distribute it more widely, uh, provide for more testing and treatment. And I've got to uh, compliment uh, Governor Polis. Jared, I think, and his team have done the best they can with what was an inadequate system Uh, set up under the Trump administration. And between the federal government and the state government, uh, Colorado is going to get this under control.
0: Although uh, we do have the vaccine now, and that came in the previous administration.
2: Well, the vaccine came in the previous administration, but uh, not enough of it was developed. And the distribution uh, system, and you could certainly talk to the governor about this, uh, was not very good under the federal approach plus the testing and a number of other things. I can complain about the Trump administration for a long time, but I don't wanna do that. I wanna talk about what we have going forward, and I think there will be uh, real uh, developments on, uh, on the COVID front to get our arms around this virus.
0: You've done a lot of constituent work over the years. You've held town halls and what you call government at grocery stores. I imagine you still hear from constituents these days. What do you hear from them about this deep partisan divide in Congress and in the country?
2: Uh, that's a great question. So uh, we haven't been able to do in-person government in the groceries, which I've done since I was first elected. Uh, we've been doing uh, telephone town halls and some different kinds of Zooms. Our telephone town halls have had you know upwards of five, six thousand people on them. Uh, we, we do them every couple, three weeks. Um, and what I do hear is that people have uh, concerns about the divide. And I think uh, part of what has to be done is uh, as, uh, as an elected leader um, and just people generally need to kind of tone down the rhetoric, uh, not use exaggerations and hyperbole all the time and listen to each other. And uh, I hope to do that as part, you know, a normal part of being Uh, a leader in in Congress or a leader in the state, Uh, but I'm also going to be uh, more careful uh, with my words. Mm.
0: A few days before they left office, the Trump administration issued a surprise decision. It was to move the U.S. Space Command headquarters from Colorado Springs to Alabama. The Colorado delegation sent a letter to Biden asking him to stop the move. Can that work?
2: Yes. I think that uh, we will be able to reverse uh, that decision uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, Colorado, by any measure, was uh, the number one choice uh, for the Air Force for a lot of different reasons. Uh, all of the assets we have here in terms of our education system, uh, the number of different uh, contractors that we have here, plus our uh, defense uh you know posture that we have especially in Colorado springs so i think that if uh this administration the biden administration looks at this again and i hope they will and i think they will uh that decision will be reversed to move it to alabama
0: You've been a strong supporter of the U.S. space program. You have several major companies in that industry in your district. The Trump administration's goals were to return to the moon in 2024 and get humans to Mars by 2033. Experts say President Biden seems less enthusiastic about this. Will those goals be met?
2: I think uh, from the Congress's standpoint... Uh, I think we're going to continue to push forward on uh, getting back to the moon and then on to Mars. And I don't know if you can see it on our Zoom, Andrea, but I have my 2033 bumper sticker where Mm -hmm. I would like our astronauts get to Mars by 2033 when the orbits are closest for a long time and is safer and saves a lot of uh, space travel. But I think this administration We'll work with Congress to make sure that we continue our human spaceflight efforts and our exploration. And we're not going to do it at the expense of um, Earth science or planetary or solar science. Uh, we can do all these things, and I will continue to uh, be a real, you know, uh, advocate uh, for our continued uh, efforts to get back to the Moon. And then on to Mars. Why is it so important to get to Mars? Mars, I think, is something, uh, and and maybe it's just personal to me, but I think it uh, uh, is something a lot of people have thought about. We were to the moon 50 years ago. And we haven't been back. We need to get back as a stepping stone to get to Mars to continue the reach, the desire of humans to explore and to go beyond where no one has gone before, as they say in Star Trek. And I think that uh, we're going to do that. I mean, there are private entities that are interested in this. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, for instance, and, and his SpaceX. There are other countries. I see this as a real partnership among the international community, the private sector, led by NASA to you know, lead us back to the moon and then on to Mars. I think it's just about science and exploration, which are really part of the human DNA.
0: You serve on a congressional subcommittee that deals with financial services. In fact, you're hoping to chair that committee. You're also something of an expert on bankruptcy, something we'd like to see an increase in for individuals and businesses. What roadblocks could be removed to reduce the number of bankruptcies or to make them less difficult?
2: Well, let's start with the the chairmanship. Um, We are having a meeting later today uh, to discuss the chairmanships of various uh, subcommittees in financial services. Maxine Waters is the chair of the committee. Uh, I think that I may become the chair of the uh, consumer protection and financial institutions, which are the banks, credit unions, uh, those kinds of institutions. I I think I'll become the chair of that subcommittee. Mm. Now, with respect to bankruptcies, um, I'm not sure if your question was to make bankruptcies easier or to uh, allow for discharges of bankruptcies uh, more available to folks. But certainly in a moment where we're in a pandemic and so many people have been rocked. Uh, financially uh, by layoffs or their businesses have closed. uh, We need to make uh, certain changes to bankruptcies to streamline so that those folks can move through the system and get back on the other side and get back to work without a lot of debt uh, that uh, could hold them back as a result of them being laid off during a pandemic.
0: Let's move on to marijuana. Colorado was among the first states to legalize it, but banking is still a problem. In the past, the House has approved your bill to allow marijuana businesses to work with banks. The Senate has rejected it. What are the prospects for that bill now?
2: I think the prospects are very good. I was hopeful in the last Congress that the Senate would eventually take it up and pass it, uh, but it got stuck in the banking committee over in the Senate, I don't think it's going to get stuck this time. Uh, You know, we ended up passing the Safe Banking Act, which allows for legitimate businesses to have legitimate uh, banking kinds of relationships Uh, because under federal law, there's no question as to whether or not they can have those relationships or not. So we need to clean up uh, the law, get the federal laws to align with the state laws. We passed it as part of our COVID packages couple times from the House, we passed it uh, as a standalone bill. Uh, I know I intend to bring it up very early this session and get it back over to the Senate. And I have, uh, you know, I'm very optimistic we'll get it passed uh, this year.
0: What's your personal top priority for this Congress? Just to wrap up a bill you're sponsoring.
2: Well, my biggest priority really comes within the COVID package. And that is to uh, try to backfill a lot of the lost tax revenue that state and local governments uh, uh, face because of uh, the drop in business and the drop in income caused by the pandemic. And that's been part of our COVID package. I know that the Biden administration would like to see uh, you know this backfilling of uh, lost state and local government rev- revenue because that'll help at the local level, it'll help with infrastructure it'll help with the economy, and it'll help get this uh, virus behind us. So, I mean, it's a, it's a big one. Obviously, I'd like to get safe banking. I've got an environmental uh, bill called Green Neighborhoods. I'd like to get that passed. So I have a lot on my plate.
0: Congressman, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you, Andrea, and I'll, I'll see you later.
0: Democratic Ed Perlmutter represents Colorado's 7th Congressional District, which includes several of Denver's western and northern suburbs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For many families, the pandemic has wiped out savings and brought them to the brink of instability. Sally Gonzalez is a working mom in Denver. Born and raised in Greeley, she shared her story about the struggle to keep going.
3: I moved out to the Denver area in 2005. I was able to provide for everything and never needed any assistance or anything like that until the pandemic completely wiped out my job. I was working at the Hyatt Regency and I also had another job at the Brown Palace, bartending and banquets and stuff for private events. And so I've been out of work since March. And they told us, go apply for unemployment. It took forever trying to even talk to anybody. They're like, oh, we'll reach out to you. And the dates were, I mean, a month, two months out for them to even give us a call back. I was able to get a hold of a woman that was able to squeeze me in and get my case started and fixed when I've had any problems. It's helped financially in some sense, but I mean, it's only like 20% of what I was used to making. So it's still been a struggle. One of my jobs called me back and I was like, sure, I'll come. So then if you work too many hours or make too much, you don't get your unemployment. But yet working wasn't enough either. The hours weren't enough and the money's not enough. So it's like, well, do I sit at home on unemployment? Or work. And it's just so stressful. I haven't had to go to food banks up until recently and waiting in line for up to three hours just to get a food box to help out family. Got to do what you need to do. I have two children. Uh, my son's 15. My daughter will be 13. I share custody with their father. So he helps out when he can. They've been Understandable. I think I'm more <laughs> stressed about it and upset about it than they are. So I'm trying to just be positive. And when it comes to my emotions, I keep that to myself. I'll go for a drive and call a friend up if I need to or go into the bedroom or, you know, just take some me time away from them. So that way I can release some of those emotions and not in front of them. <laughs>
0: That is Sally Gonzalez of Denver. Her story is part of a series on how Coloradans are coping financially almost a year into the pandemic. Our thanks to CPR News reporter Haley Sanchez for producing Sally's story. When we come back, policing and blue lining. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
2: In 2012, Colorado had a huge wildfire season, and the state government formed a task force to learn lessons and plan a response. But last year, more than twice as many acres burned, and there's been little action on many problems the government identified.
4: Those elected officials were also being contacted by lobbyists.
2: I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis from the CPR News Climate Team. Listen this week as we look into the backstory and solutions for the new wildfire reality in Colorado. And find our coverage at CPR.org. This
0: is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The Capitol insurrection on January 6th has sparked outrage among some activists. They see disparities in the law enforcement response to the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer. Aya Gruber is a professor of criminal law and procedure at the University of Colorado Law School in Boulder. She believes the difference can be explained by blue lining and a perception that the mostly white mob of the insurrection would not be a threat. She wrote about the concept in a paper for the Houston Law Review in December. Aya joins us to talk about it and welcome
4: to the show. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You recently wrote a paper, as we said, for the Houston Law Review on blue lining. What is it and when was it first used to define this idea?
4: So blue lining was really a term I came up with when I was thinking about the role that police play in managing race and public spaces. Uh, We've pretty much all heard at least in scholarly circles of the concept of redlining and that was a concept of banks really designating black neighborhoods as untouchable spaces for loans and we've seen the devastating economic results of that in the form of black families being unable to accrue wealth in the housing market and it's something that you know president biden has been bringing up mm-hmm. um well much in the way banks sort of redlined black neighborhoods and designated them disorderly, untouchable areas. Police have served the function of also demarcating black and poor neighborhoods as these high crime disorderly areas and concentrating their policing in those areas. Um, so I use blue lining sort of in that way that that red was used. I also use blue lining because the term thin blue line has been sort of deliberately publicized um, to the American public to indicate that police were the only line between utter criminality and disorder and a functioning society. And really what I see the blue line is as one maintaining different hierarchies, racial, class, and socioeconomic. So those are the two senses in which I use the term blue lining. And blue obviously
0: refers to law enforcement. How do you think blue lining explains the differences in response to the Black Lives Matters protests at the Capitol insurrection?
4: Well, I think it's a complicated story of, of many factors, but one of the factors that's clear, and I think this is you know, evident in all different kinds of protests, not just Black Lives Matter versus the insurrection, but that is that the perception of protesters when they are uh, protesting for left-based issues and especially when they're black protesters or black adjacent protesters protesting the police the perception of them is that they're highly dangerous highly disorderly and even you know words like terrorists and rioters were used for peaceful protesters whereas with the Capitol insurrection we had mainly white right-leaning protesters um, whom law enforcement officials had been tracking and seeing online were saying that they were going to be armed and they were prepared to fight to the death and they were you know, relatively organized. And yet the perception of them as more peaceful and more orderly persisted, despite the massive amounts of chatter where many of them, Themselves were using this highly violent rhetoric. So
0: what specifically did the Capitol Police fail to do in either the planning or the policing during the ins- insurrection?
4: Well, it's a complicated story, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, a lot of people are pointing to the smoking gun evidence that the police are you know, really connected to these white supremacist groups through the the selfies and the, Mm -hmm. you know, police behavior of directing some of the rioters to different offices within the Capitol, and then the amount of police and military presence there were within the body of the rioters themselves. But I think the main connection to this perception that blackness and criminality are related or black neighborhoods and criminality are related was just the idea that it was hard for the officials to really believe that the Trump supporters were going to be violent insurrectionists. Mm. They didn't actually think that was going to happen. And so when the Capitol Police went to the Sergeant of Arms at at, at um, the Congress and said, you know, we might need some military help. There was a reluctance to send in the military. And, and this is kind of understandable because there had been so much pushback in the militarization against the Black Lives Matter protesters. But when they made that balancing decision they really saw bringing in the military as unnecessary because of the nature of these protests and weighed against the perception of a militarized D.C., they decided it wasn't the right time, whereas it was kind of like the opposite calculation for Black Lives Matter. There wasn't this chatter. There wasn't this indication that it was going to be totally violent and riotous. And yet there was a quickness to use that military, paramilitary um, or militarized policing presence.
0: Several of the people in the mob outside the U.S. Capitol building were almost indignant at the police response.
4: Was that surprising? It's not that surprising. Um, You know, we have police concentrated in certain neighborhoods and they're called quote unquote high crime neighborhoods but decades worth of criminology studies and there's a very famous criminologist named jeffrey fagan out out of new york who has studied this for many years has shown that police officers perceptions of a high crime area are nearly unrelated to actual crime rates and relate far more to the racial makeup of the area namely black um, or the person they have to be arresting at the time. So when police have a perception of high crime neighborhood and criminality that's related to race and socioeconomic status, and you have Trump supporters that are mostly middle class um, or upper middle class, I mean, people who could sort of afford to fly to Washington, D.C. and protest, and and white, of course they're surprised when the police treat them aggressively. So there was one woman who was absolutely in tears and said, wait a second, the police are shooting at us. I mean, I, uh, you know, there, there was a bullet. Somebody did die, but mostly shooting tear gas. But she said, police are shooting at us. They're not supposed to do that. We're the patriots. They're supposed to shoot at Black Lives Matter. And mm. she was genuinely confused and upset at this situation because she had not experienced being a target of the police. And a big reason why she hadn't experienced that was her race and her socioeconomic status. And she was expecting to join a mob that had chattered online about violently overthrowing the government. And yet her expectation was still that the police would not see her as a threat.
0: Some people say the response after incidents ends up being more policing. Let's hear from Colorado Congressman Jason Crow. He's talking about the security in Washington, D.C. during the inauguration.
2: The self styled militia groups and um, anti government groups and uh, conspiracy theorists uh, who you know deeply have believed these lies that they have been told. Uh, and they've been radicalized, and I think we have to take that very seriously. And I have to uh, make sure that we are working with uh, our law enforcement agencies and and others to uh, address any threats. And I think that's something that we're going to have to address in not just the months, but the years ahead.
0: Is increased police presence the best response to domestic terror threats?
4: I think we have to be very careful going down that road. And, you know, there's been a lot of public discussion and a lot of public debate over what the future of government security and community services should look like. And people are saying we don't want death. We don't want militarized, racialized policing. And we see in countries where there are significant terror cells a militarized society, even lapsing into um, authoritarianism and civil war. And we don't want to go down that road.
0: Aya Gruber is a professor of criminal law and procedure at CU Boulder Law School. Thank you, Aya.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Life's not on hold for anyone during the pandemic and teens especially are missing milestones. On Thursday, CPR and Call to Mind from American Public Media are hosting a free virtual event to talk with teens and youth mental health experts about how they're coping with the disappointment. This week on Colorado Matters, we're introducing you to three teen panelists. Nadia Rivera is a high school freshman. She recently moved from Los Angeles to Aberdeen, Maryland. Her 15th birthday, is coming up in August, and she's been imagining what her quinceañera will be like for years.
1: When I was little, it was always like Cinderella's ball, almost. I, I had a big imagination. Of course, my vision has kind of evolved since then. So like a lot of glitter, I guess, big dresses and like super fancy decorations.
0: Beyond the beautiful dress and the fun, Rivera's been preparing to celebrate this rite of passage into womanhood with her family and friends.
1: Since this is a big cultural thing, my parents wanted me to do something to embrace that culture, so I had to at least be mostly fluent in Spanish. And I have to keep up with my grades and, you know, just be good around the house and I have to be able to prove to them that I am mature enough to have this symbolism of coming into womanhood.
0: But with vaccines rolling out slowly across the country, she's losing hope that it will be safe to host a big party this summer.
1: It's sad to think that that might not happen anymore and to think of my little five-year-old self being heartbroken.
0: Even if she can't host a Cinderella ball, she's thinking of smaller ways to celebrate.
1: If it's just a cake and if it's just watching TV and having a good day with my mom, dad and my sister, that would be enough for me considering this entire pandemic that we're going through.
0: Rivera has also been reflecting on her Latinx identity and how that ties into why she's so disappointed to miss a big quinceañera celebration. She spoke with my colleague Avery Lil.
1: My quinceañera is a big thing for me because it's sort of like validation for myself. I've always had a problem with my identity because I would get teased or picked on because I didn't like spicy food. So I wasn't a real Latina or I didn't go to church every Sunday. So I wasn't a real Latina or silly things like that. And at the same time, I would still experience racism and people calling me racial slurs. So it was very confusing and I had to figure out, I still am figuring out how to embrace my culture or if I even need to prove anything at all. So this quinceanera was a way of validating myself.
5: And so now that it's up in the air, that is so tough. How are you thinking through how you still participate in your culture? And Let yourself know that you really are Latina, even if you don't have a quinceanera.
1: Well, a lot of what helps me is when I'm around my family. All of my family on both sides were born and raised for a good portion of their life in their original countries. My dad's side is from Guatemala and my mom's is from Nicaragua. And the next generation of our family has been mostly in America. And for some of my cousins, I know that they've also dealt with that problem too. But just being around my family and talking about stories and things like that and just having fun is really what makes me feel at home and what makes me feel like I don't need validation because I know. So it really goes back and forth a lot and it's hard. Yeah. And then dealing with identity,
5: That's a big part of mental health. How has that been?
1: It's been very stressful. I'll overthink about it a lot as I do a lot of other things. But this one thing would always come up in my mind. Even if somebody didn't mean to invalidate me or say something to offend me like that, I would relate it to that situation that I've been dealing with for all of my life.
5: Yeah. And how has your mental health been in the
1: pandemic? In the pandemic, it's definitely been a roller coaster, (laughs) to say the least. But I've had probably some of the lowest lows that I've had in my life. But right now, I really think that I'm at the highest I've ever been. Luckily, because I get to spend so much time with my family, and it's been so eye-opening.
5: And obviously, quinceañera is one thing, and it's really important. You've also been dealing with a lot of other things in the pandemic. You moved across the country. What are some of the other things that have affected your mental health this year?
1: A few of the other biggest things that have affected me is moving, of course, and losing my friends, and also school. School has been such a big one for my mental health this year. Yeah, And how do you cope with that? How do you
5: move through it? Because you said now you're at the best point that you've been.
1: Social media has helped a lot. And obviously being able to be connected with the rest of the world, really, and still with my friends that I left while moving. And there are accounts and funny people. And it's a lot about being able to relate to other people on there, find people that are going through the same things as you and not and knowing that it's not just you that's going through this. And when you're thinking about
5: social media as a way of actually helping your mental health, I mean, is it more accessible than other ways of finding support, like an adult or a therapist or something like that?
1: For a lot of people I know, they've gone to therapists and they've talked to guidance counselors and they've talked to parents. And it's not the same because it's not as, like I said before, relatable. There are many phrases and many things that I think parents is where it comes from mostly, say, and sometimes, you know, family, friends, say, that really put you down and make you feel like what you're going through isn't anything. So I think that social media, it's a whole entire new tool, a whole entire new resource. Can you tell us more about what makes you feel invalidated when you talk with adults? They will literally say that, oh, that's nothing because... When I was your age, I was going through this and that and making you seem like this is you exaggerating. And it worries you like, oh, if this seems this hard now, then imagine the future. Also, things like calling them dramatic kind of give the same effect. But my personality, I guess I've been called dramatic a lot. And being called dramatic when I'm finally talking about my mental health is really upsetting because then later they wonder why I'm not talking about my mental health with them.
5: Yeah. Is that tough when you're talking about things like missing your in quinceanera or other things that you're missing this year? Do you feel like adults in your life might not understand how that is for you to miss those things?
1: I definitely think that they don't because this is such a new era, especially with technology. Even if it's end of the year school trips, or if you're in middle school, which like it was for me, you didn't get to experience that last year's celebrations and things like that. And that means a lot because that's something everyone looks forward to from the very first year.
5: Yeah, and since you moved during your freshman year, does that mean that there are friends in your middle school that you just didn't see after we went to
1: online learning in March last year? Definitely. I lost a lot of connections. I haven't seen my old school in a year, I think, in March. It will be literally a year since I've seen anyone except for a small group of very close friends. I've lost a lot of connections and friendships, but it also really brought out who truly is my friend and what bonds I truly do have with people and how strong they are.
5: And how are you talking with your close friends about mental health right now?
1: I'm very grateful to, for the first time in what feels like ever, I've been able to just pour things out and rant and talk about things that I need to take things off my chest that I need to talk about. And it's really relieving to have someone there because also it's not just me that's spilling everything out because it's her too and my other friends too. And that gives me a sense of allyship because really it is because we're all going through the same thing at our age with you know, what's supposed to happen and the pandemic.
0: That's Nadia Rivera speaking with my colleague, Avery Lill. Nadia is one of the teen panelists for the virtual event Avery will be hosting this Thursday at 4 p.m., Life's Not On Hold, Teens Navigate Missed Milestones. CPR is co-producing the event with Call to Mind. It's an American public media initiative. We'll be sharing mental health solutions as we talk with two other teens. We'll also talk with a school social worker and an advocate for youth mental health who wrote the book that inspired the movie Mean Girls. You're also an important part of the discussion. You'll be able to ask the panelists questions during the live Q&A. Register for free at CPR.org. Many LGBTQ people go back into the closet later in life. That's largely because they're more likely to face discrimination and a lack of social support in health care, assisted living, and hospice facilities. CPR's Claire Cleveland has this story.
6: Esther Lucero met the love of her life, Kathy, back in 1980. They worked together in Denver, and at first, they were just friends.
2: There was nothing at the beginning, but she told me, she says, the first day I met you, I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with that girl. So there you go.
6: (laughs) They started dating a few years later. Then they moved in together and bought a house. In 2015, they got married. A couple years later, Lucero and Kathy both got colds. Lucero got better, but Kathy developed new symptoms. They found out she had a rare form of leukemia. In the hospitals, Lucero told the healthcare staff that Kathy was her wife.
2: Kathy's the one that told me, she says, Don't tell the nurses that we're married, okay? And I said, Why? And she says, Because they're treating you differently. And they're treating me differently. I said, Okay.
6: Lucero says some staff responded well, but others did seem off put. She doesn't know for sure, but she thought they were treated differently at times because they were gay. One nurse seemed to avoid Kathy's room, and Lucero says sometimes others would wait for her to leave before telling Kathy details about her condition.
2: And to me, it was like, hey, I'm married to her, you know, and it just hurt. I don't even know how to say it. I I know I cried that night.
6: Six months after her diagnosis, Kathy died. Lucero was devastated. While together, she and Kathy had kept their relationship private from a lot of family, colleagues, and neighbors. Carrie Candrian says that's common. She's a professor and researcher at the University of Colorado and works with LGBTQ seniors. She says many feel isolated. Then they follow up with, but I haven't been able to tell anyone or my family never knew. And I just get chills when I say that because I think for people who don't identify as as LGBT, I think it's so easy to forget just the work that hiding requires. Candrian says one statistic haunts her. A public health study from Columbia University found that LGBTQ people who live in communities with high stigma can lose 12 years of life expectancy. Early on in her career, Candrian shadowed a hospice worker at an in-home consult. She noticed how the forms were tailored toward heterosexual and cisgendered people, asking questions like, are you married, rather than, do you have a partner? As an LGBT person, you face a heck of a choice. You know, do you stay silent and come out and risk not having your partner be involved, risk not having the person who shares half your memories, who can advocate for you? Candrian says most hospice and assisted living facilities still don't ask for sexual orientation and gender identity. So there's not much data on LGBTQ seniors, and it's hard to tell how widespread these problems are which means we're not really able to ever develop interventions that are specifically tailored for this population. One way to start, Candrian says, is by giving people a new vocabulary. And that can happen through conversations, like the ones she's leading at six metro area facilities run by the nonprofit Christian Living Communities. There, she's helping to train staff to be more aware of LGBTQ seniors and provide a safe space for them to be more open. Stormy Faust-Mailey works at one of those facilities in Denver. The vast majority of people who are LGBTQ, who look for senior living, go back into the closet in order to feel that they won't be discriminated against or that they'll be accepted by their neighbors. She started an LGBT friends group at her facility and was surprised by who showed up. They're also using a Colorado Health Foundation grant to create an educational video to give staff more LGBTQ competency training. Faust Maley says she hopes this leads to more of these seniors getting proper care and equal treatment. If we can help make this process easier for other people or inspire other people to do this work, then, I mean, it's a lofty goal. But, you know, that would be amazing. Back at her condo, Esther Lucero says she didn't have many people to grieve with after her wife passed. So instead, she wrote letters to Kathy and talked to a therapist. But eventually, she finally started to meet with LGBTQ groups, and that helped her to open up more.
4: This is who I am. If I say I'm not,
2: it's like Kathy never existed to some extent. She did exist. And to me, coming out was a way of saying, look, she was my wife. And I did love this person very much. She was everything to me.
6: Lucero now hopes that sharing her story will help encourage other LGBTQ seniors to be more open, too, whether it's with family or at the hospital. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. And
0: I'm Andre Dukakis. Special thanks to producers Michelle P. Fulcher and Carla Jimenez. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.